Jenny's just said we're going to be starting a new series today uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, and so we're going to get straight into it, but just by way of a very quick introduction. Philippians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, who, if you didn't know, was a first century Christian leader. Uh, it was written in around AD 60 to a church in a place called Philippi, which was in Greece. And Paul, who wrote this letter, as I'm sure some of you will know, but maybe not all, as part of his ministry, uh, traveled around from place to place, telling people about Jesus, uh, starting churches, and then in some cases going back to visit and to strengthen. Uh, And within that as well, he wrote letters to many of those churches. And this is one such letter. And the church in Philippi was one that Paul had started uh, some 10 years before writing this letter. And so the context of the letter is that having started the church and set them off on their journey together, Paul now writes back to them uh, 10 years down the line to encourage them. He'd been there right at the beginning as the very first people in Philippi came to faith in Christ Jesus. He'd seen them as they began to gather as this brand new church community. And then he writes back to them now. And it seems that the church in Philippi was in a pretty good spot when Paul wrote to them. Uh, It's the only letter that Paul writes where there isn't really criticism for its recipients. Actually, if you read most of Paul's writings, there's a particular issue, or in some cases, many issues going on in the churches that he writes to that he is seeking to address. And he can be quite strong in the way he writes to these groups of Christians uh, in correcting the error that they've fallen into. By contrast, though, this letter to the Philippian church doesn't contain any of that. There's no correction, no uh, pointing out error that they're walking in. Actually, this is a letter broadly of encouragement to the church at Philippi. It it, it seems that it was written to a church that was in a pretty good spot. It It was a healthy church. There was no gross immorality like he had to address in the church in Corinth. There was no Uh, kind of rampant false teaching uh, or false gospel being proclaimed like he had to address elsewhere in Ephesians and Galatians. Here, Philippians paints for us a picture of the kind of church community that we want to be. And so as we dig into it together, I'm confident that there'll be lessons for us to learn, there'll be exhortations for us to receive, and examples of godly Christians for us to follow. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're listening to this and you're not a Christian. Well, this series, I hope, will give you an insight into what life should look like for Christians, for a church community. should give you an insight into what it means to be a Christian. And actually, Jenny hinted at it earlier as she started the service, that actually the way we're seeking to live as we love God and love one another, actually, in caring for practical needs. It's great to have Eileen back with us today after she's recovering from her shoulder injury. And I know James isn't here today, but he's desperate to be back with us after his leg operation last week. It's good to have AJ back uh, post-surgery as well. But I know that each of those people, amongst others in the church, have received practical love and care and support. That's some of what it looks like. And I hope as we look at Philippians together, we're going to see more of what it looks like to be a healthy church community. Maybe you're here today and you've kind of always been around church. You've grown up in it and maybe you just feel a bit apathetic today. Like, Your life is a bit stagnant. Your spiritual life, your relationship with God just feels a bit stagnant. Maybe you're here and in that place and you're not even totally sure why you're here. It's just that you always come. Well, I hope that this series will serve to reignite in you a passion for Jesus and for his church.
maybe others of you, you're in a good spot right now. But you just, you're wanting to grow in maturity. You're wanting to be encouraged in your faith. And, and you're wanting to receive some challenge and provocation to press on and to grow. To become more like Christ. You're wanting to grow in maturity and passion and health in your relationship with God. Well, I, I hope that again, this series will serve you in that. As we read what Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. Wherever you're up to, I really hope that this series will serve you well. I believe it will. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get straight into Philippians chapter 1 together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is always in season. Lord, that your word for us is always relevant, always applicable, It always speaks right to our hearts. It addresses the issues that we're facing. We thank you for the church at Philippi, for all that you were doing there and then. We thank you that Paul wrote for their encouragement and strengthening. Lord, and that in your kindness we have it now as your word to us, that just as it served for their strengthening and encouragement and equipping, so too it might serve for our strengthening and encouraging and equipping today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take it and apply it into our hearts and lives for your glory. Amen. Good, well, let's read together from Philippians chapter 1. We get the introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have found you in my heart, and whenever I, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to say amen to that prayer. (laughs) I want us to notice as we look through this opening part of Philippians together a few things. Firstly, I want us to notice Paul's perspective. Then we're going to look at Paul's passion and Paul's prayer. And then we're going to actually open Acts chapter 16 together and see how this church at Philippi got its start and what we might learn from that. So Paul's perspective, well, we need to know that Paul wrote this letter from prison. Paul was in chains when he wrote this letter. And yet his perspective as he writes to these people who he dearly loved, is one of thankfulness and joy. Just like let that sink in for a moment, right? Paul is in chains. It's not a comfortable place to be. And from prison, he writes this letter and the introductory couple of paragraphs just overflow with joy and delight that The Philippian church are pressing on in the faith, that they're pursuing Jesus, that they're partnering in the gospel. That means that they're sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Guys, I just want to help us with Paul's perspective. I don't know what's going on for all of you, but I want to encourage you to find great delight when you see people going on in their walk with God. To take great joy from seeing people flourishing and growing in the faith and partnering in the gospel. Such a healthy and helpful perspective. Paul delights in the fact 
that the Philippians know Jesus, that they're going with Jesus, that they're growing like Jesus. All of the things that we have as our pursuits as a church community, the Philippians are doing it, and Paul's like, yes, come on! Cheer you on in my prayers. I thank God for your rejoice. I just can't help it. I'm so delighted that that's where you're up to. And Paul is confident, although he's in chains, that God's going to complete the work that he's begun in these Philippian Christians. That from the moment they put their faith in him, God's been at work in their hearts and lives, changing them, forming them more and more into the likeness of Christ Jesus. And he's going to complete it. He's about to work and he's going to finish it. Guys, maybe some of you feel a bit weary today in one way or another. Something we've talked about at the start of this year. I think there's a general kind of feel of apathy in society in one way or another with what's going on financially. I think some of the longer term effects of COVID and just the energy that that took from people, the emotional energy that that took us to get through. And we can feel to a certain extent this kind of, maybe not that we're in prison, but just, it's hard. I want to encourage you, just as Paul encouraged the Philippians, God has begun a work in you. He's begun a work here, and he's going to see it through to completion for his glory. He's, he's at work in you. If you're a Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, then he is at work in you, and he will see it through to completion. That's Paul's perspective, and it needs to be ours as we start this letter, what about Paul's passion for the Philippian church? He writes that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Like Paul, his love for the Philippian church is not just a kind of like, I, I quite like you, or I'm quite fond of you. I'm in prison and it would be nicer if I were with you than I were here. That's not the way he writes. When you read this opening statement, he's like yearning to be with them. He says he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. What's he mean when he's saying that? He's saying that the same love for them that took Christ to the cross is, is the, the kind of love and affection and desire he has to be with them. Passion, he feels this strongly. He really, really loves them. And I guess I want to encourage you today. I, I know, I know James was, like, he messaged me earlier. He's so gutted that he can't be here. And it's not just like a casual, oh, it would be nicer to be with you than to be stuck at home with a broken leg. There's a sense in which James could say, along with Paul, I, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. There's something that God does in our hearts as Christians when we come into relationship with him that, that so binds us to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we should be able to say of our church family, like, I, I yearn for you. Like, I long to be with you. It, like, it grieves me when we're separated for longer than is necessary. I'm longing to be with you. Paul's passionate for them, to be with them, for their maturity, for their growth, for their health. And he's praying. He prays because he loves them. He prays for them that they would continue to grow in maturity in the faith that they'd continue to grow like Jesus, that their love would abound for one another. Did you notice that was one of the things that he said he prayed for them? That their love would abound for one another, that their knowledge of God would deepen, that they would be filled with righteousness. These are the kind of things that I want to encourage you to pray for one another. These are the kind of things I pray for you as a church family. You need to know that. If you don't, I get to the end of Paul's prayer and want to go, amen, because this is the kind of stuff that I'm praying for you, and I want to encourage you to pray for one another. And Paul's underlying motivation in all of it, and if you noticed it as we got to the end of verse 11, 
What does he say? To the glory and praise of God. See, Paul's overarching motivation, actually in all of his ministry and all that he did, and you've hopefully clocked, we have these core pursuits as a church community, and the, the overarching bracket that concludes them is all for the glory of God. As Christians, this should be what motivates us, what drives us. See, Paul was passionate about the church at Philippi. He, he loved them deeply. He prayed for them earnestly with joy and thanksgiving. And, but his desire ultimately was underpinned by this greater desire for God to be glorified. I want to encourage you. <laughs> As Christians, this, this should be our greatest goal in all that we do, that God would be glorified. That's why we're here as a church. That's why Foundation Church exists. It's to glorify God in word, in action, in all that we do, in the way we love one another and serve one another for God's glory. When Christians grow deeper in the knowledge of Jesus and when they grow in the likeness of Jesus as Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, then God is glorified. Because, guys, we can't do it on our own, right? If we're actually going to grow in the likeness of Jesus, that isn't going to happen by our striving or our gritted teeth and determination. I'm going to be more like Jesus. I just am. I'm going to work really hard at it. It doesn't work. The only way that Christians grow to maturity in the faith, that we grow in the likeness of Christ, that we join him on mission to others, motivated by love to go and share the good news of Jesus with them, is, is by his spirit at work in us. And so it's all to his glory. It's his work. So it's Paul's introduction to the church at Philippi gives us some context. And Chris is going to speak next week and I'm going to pick up on the rest of chapter one, but I want us to, to set the scene to help our understanding a bit more of the letter to the church at Philippi to, to examine who these people are that Paul writes to with such longing and such affection with such gratitude in his heart for their faith and their walk with God. Who are these people that Paul's so proud of, who he prays for with such joy because of their partnership in the gospel? Well, in Acts chapter 16, we find out. Because in Acts chapter 16, we have a front row seat to the birth of the church at Philippi. And so we're going to read it together. Paul was on one of his missionary journeys the first into Europe. He had this Macedonian call. You can read about it slightly earlier in Acts, of this man from Macedonia in a dream who calls him over, come and minister to us over here. And Paul, the first place he gets to and where he ministers is in Philippi. And we're going to pick up the story at the point that Paul and his companions, including Luke and Barnabas, have just arrived in Philippi from Acts chapter 16. So we're going to read from Acts 16, verse 13 through to uh, 15. So we read this to begin with. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke with the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Paul starts this missionary journey as he started all of his missionary journeys from what we can see, which was first going to where the Jews were 
gathered. And then his, his missionary journeys didn't stop with the Jews. He reached into the Gentile communities as well. But he, he tended to go and to find where the Jews were gathering and to begin to engage with them and share the good news of Jesus with the Jewish community. And that's exactly what happens here. It appears there's no synagogue in Philippi at this point in time, but the Jewish community have gathered by the river to pray, a place of prayer. And so Paul and his companions go there, and they find at this gathering on the Sabbath a group of women who are God-fearing women who are either ethnic Jews or they are looking in on the Jewish faith and inquiring and wanting to learn and grow. They're they're wanting to find out about God. And amongst them is this lady, Lydia, from Thyatira. That's in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And she has come to Philippi, presumably on business. We find out about her that she's a dealer in purple cloth, um, Thyatira was actually uh, famous for its dyeing process and dyeing fabrics. Uh, and so Lydia has brought purple fabrics that have been dyed, presumably in Thyatira. And she's a tradeswoman. She's a, she's a business leader. And she's brought this purple cloth to Philippi to sell. She's got property at Philippi. Talks about her whole household. We get this picture of Lydia. She's, she's an affluent, influential lady in the community. She's wealthy. She's done well for herself. And she's a God-fearer. So she's rejected paganism. She's rejected polytheism. And she's listening to the teaching of the Jews and, and wanting to learn about God. And she's at this gathering... She's trying to live a moral life. She's seeking spiritually. She's open. She's interested. She's a God-fearer. She understands from gathering with the Jews, presumably, that God has given a holy law. And she will have understood from her gathering with the Jews if she's listening to the Torah read, which she would have been doing, unless it was the first time she'd ever gathered with them, which seems unlikely from the context, that she knows that there's a way for sins to be removed because it's laid out in the Torah. And Paul turns up with his companions into this context and he explains the gospel. He explains the need for Jesus. That Jesus is the way that her sins could be removed He engages her with reasoning. So Paul engages this group of Jews at an intellectual level first. He he reasons with them and shares the gospel with them. It's an educated bunch. And as Paul engages in reasoning with them and sharing the gospel, we read that God opens her mind or opens her heart. God opens Lydia's heart to receive the message of the gospel. Salvation is always a work of God opening people's hearts. Even when we engage with people in kind of academic reasoning, if someone is going to come to faith in Jesus, to saving faith, it is because God has opened their heart to do so. And brilliantly, that's what God does here with Lydia. She gets baptized, so there's repentance and faith and baptism, as is the normal New Testament pattern, and then she invites Paul and his companions to come and stay in her house. This is the start of the church in Philippi. Lydia and her household, this influential businesswoman, comes to saving faith, and her household along with her, and the church community begins. But it doesn't stop there. We get to read on from verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, so they're they're back by the river to gather with more of this Jewish community and proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. I mean, she, she knew what the deal was. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. The contrast between this girl and Lydia is huge. The next person we hear about coming to faith in Philippi is this slave girl who has a, is possessed by an evil spirit, a spirit of divination. She's, she's got nothing. She's a slave girl. She, she has nothing to call her own. Lydia is wealthy, she's an intellect, she's a seeker, a thinker, a worshipper, and she is in control of what's happening in her world. That's the picture we have of Lydia. She's in control of her finances, of her reasoning. This poor girl is enslaved and utterly out of control. She's economically emotionally and spiritually captive and a mess. She, she has no control whatsoever over anything. She's, she's a slave. She's, she's economically indebted to or owned by someone else. And she's spiritually completely captive. She's the total opposite of Lydia. And she a result of this spiritual captivity is that she, she follows Paul and his companions around being very disruptive. Paul's trying to share the gospel with people and it's like he can't get a word in edgeways because this girl, by the spirit that she's possessed by, is just kind of screaming out over the top. And what she's screaming like, is true, that he is going to tell them the way that they can be saved. He is going to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus to them, but it's just grossly disruptive and Paul eventually, <laughs> I, I sort of want, this picture amuses me slightly because you'd think like the first time it happened, maybe he would have turned around and at that point done something. But it appears like it just kind of went on for some time and like eventually he got ground down. And he's like, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> and I just, I'm sure Paul was much uh, more patient than that. But Paul doesn't appeal to the intellect of this slave girl in the same way that he had done with Lydia. He doesn't reason with her. He commands the spirit to leave. She was enslaved to this spirit. It held her captive, and in an instant, she's set free by the power of God. Lydia, Paul begins by reasoning with her mind, and God opens her heart to hear the gospel, to receive it. This slave girl, she has this powerful encounter. Freedom from captivity, straight for the heart. She's set free. And she comes to faith. What an amazing start to this church community. We've got Lydia, a wealthy, powerful businesswoman, and now this poor, powerless slave girl. The first Christians in Philippi. And there's more. See, we read on. When her owners realized from verse 19 that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This isn't a particularly true or fair allegation, uh, but they whip the crowd up into a frenzy over it. And we read from verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So Paul and Silas are put in to prison for what's happened. 
And the, the crowd is in such a frenzy that actually the, the jailer is commanded to guard them carefully and he puts them right in the middle of the prison, in the most secure place. Now this is possibly actually to protect them from the, the kind of baying mob. They've been beaten and they are thrown into prison and the guard is commanded to guard them carefully, to keep them secure. And he goes above and beyond the call of duty. He, he puts them in the inner cell and he fastens their feet in stocks. Now, we have a kind of instant, because all of us went to primary school, <laughs> or the majority of us went to primary school where we learnt about medieval England, uh, and we instantly have this picture of like a wooden thing that you put your head and your hands through. Like those are stocks, and people throw rotten fruit and veg at you. And actually, we saw some the other day when we were in Windsor as a family. It's quite fun, actually, if you're not being outside the guild hall. They've got like knitted fruit and vegetables that you can throw at whoever's in stocks from your family. Um, so that's the kind of mental image we have. Uh, these stocks were not those stocks. These were actually a, a, effectively a kind of torture device where you would be fastened in them and stretched out into such an uncomfortable position that your muscles would begin to cramp up and you would be in a serious amount of pain. See, the jailer went above and beyond what was called for in this situation and he actually tortures the prisoners. Let's carry on. We read from verse 25. What's going to happen next? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. This is amazing, right? They've just been unjustly arrested, beaten, thrown into prison, tortured, and they worship and pray and praise God. <laughs> this is amazing. And the result of it is that all the other prisoners who are there hear them delighting in the goodness of God, even in the midst of pain and suffering and hardship. What a great witness. We read from verse 26, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. This is amazing. As they pray and worship, God throws open the prison. They're all free to go. But they don't go anywhere. They stay. It's an intriguing decision in the circumstances, isn't it? You've been arrested, beaten, tortured, and all of a sudden... There's freedom and they don't go anywhere. Now this jailer, he's a hard man. He's different again to Lydia or the slave girl. He's not particularly an intellect, most likely. He's not an academic, at least, which is why he's in the profession he's in rather than something else. He's not, as far as we're aware, a spiritual man. There's, there's no hint in the text that he's a, a God-fearer, like Lydia was, or that there's anything else particularly spiritual about this guy's outlook on life. He wants to fulfill his duty to Rome. He's, he wants to be a good Roman citizen. He's kind of middle of the road. He's not particularly wealthy, but he would have been paid okay. He's not poor either, by any stretch. He was duty-bound. If you notice his instant response when the prison doors were open and he assumed everyone had gone, he gets ready to kill himself. See, the, the penalty for letting prisoners escape would have been death. And so he sees they've escaped. He's like, well, I'll, I'll just get on with it. 
how did God reach this man? This tough, duty-bound Roman man. How did Paul and the others share the good news of Jesus with him? How did it come about? We read on from verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Through Paul and the others, he sees in them a duty to something higher and greater than the duty he has towards Rome. And actually a duty that that goes beyond even self-preservation. They they stay when they could have left. They give up their freedom. There's a duty to them, in them, to something greater. And, And observing this in them brings him to Jesus. Leads him to ask, what must I do to be saved? It's like, how can I be more like you guys? Like, how, how can I get what you've got? See, he's, he mistreats them and they're in agony because of him. And then if they'd run off, he would have died. But they stay. He knows what they believe. Right? He knows they're in prison for proclaiming Jesus. He's heard them singing and worshipping and crying out in prayer instead of cursing him and ranting against him. And instead of escaping, which would have meant death for him, they've given up their freedom so that he might live. It's amazing, isn't it? They've imitated the self-sacrificial love of their saviour, Jesus. They've so understood what Christ did for them and the freedom that's won for them that they they imitate that in their lives. Their moment comes for freedom. That they're unjustly being punished. And instead of taking their opportunity for freedom, they stay there so that this Roman jailer, this Philippian jailer, might live. Christ unjustly suffered in your place at the cross. and he, He saw it through. He stayed there. Someone shouted to him when he was on the cross, if you're truly the son of God, like get yourself down from there. Just call, call your father in heaven and he'll send angels to, to lift you off and to sort you out. He'll send a whole legion of agents, angels concerning you. Jesus didn't take that escape. He didn't take that route out. He saw it through so that you might live. They imitate this self-sacrificial love. And as they do in practice, they share the gospel with this jailer. It's a witness to him. And he's so compelled by this act of self-sacrificial love, this costly act of humility and love. So moved by it that he rushes in and says, what, like, what must I do to be saved? Like, How can I get what you've got that would compel you to behave in the way you've behaved tonight in this jail? They reply to him, we read from verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. This is a really beautiful picture, isn't it? There's so much in here, actually, that we could dig into. But but notice this hard jailer that just a short time ago was torturing these guys now responds to the gospel, and his heart is so changed by God that he washes their wounds. 
The guy who's just tortured them is now serving them. Having witnessed and seen their sacrificial love, he comes to faith and instantly he begins to live in the same way. It's a sign of real true repentance and faith, right? Changed behavior. And his whole household are saved along with him. This is how it starts in Philippi. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. What a motley crew. (laughs) It's hardly your dream church plant team. Like if you were going to set out to start a church, you wouldn't pick those three. Like you just wouldn't. It's not how a human would do it. But it's how God chooses to start this church in Philippi. All of them experience God's grace. These three characters couldn't be more different from one another, could they? I mean, there's real contrast (laughs) between them. But this is the start of the Philippian church that Paul writes back to with such affection and such longing, such warmth. And I think it's important for us to know that as we look around, even today as we look around. We can be encouraged by this ragtag bunch in Philippi. We can also be challenged. Because if we're honest, the truth for each one of us is that actually we tend to do life with people who we like, who like us, and who we are like. That tends to be the way we live. We socialize and invest in and gravitate towards people who are like us. But that shouldn't be the case in Christ's church. You see, the gospel breaks through all of that. These three couldn't have been more different, and yet the gospel breaks down all of those social and economic divides. These characters wouldn't have ever hung out with each other before they were united in Christ. Like They just wouldn't. None of them would have gone anywhere near each other unless it was the jailer locking up the slave girl for some reason. They're united in Christ and the gospel smashes through these dividing walls. I want to encourage you, church. Don't settle into cliques with people who are like you and who you like and who like you. The gospel teaches us to love those who aren't like us, to value those who aren't like us, who we disagree with, who we share different interests with, who we're different ages to, who we wouldn't naturally hang out with. The gospel teaches us in love to give our time to those who it isn't always easy or comfortable to spend time with. You think it was easy for Lydia to open up her home to that slave girl? Like It, it would not have been. You think it was easy for the slave girl who had nothing to go into Lydia's house or to meet with her and spend time with her, to build a relationship with this successful woman who had so much when she had nothing. I mean, talk about intimidating. It would be hard to build that bridge. But that's what the gospel does in us. This is how the church should be. Different people, different backgrounds, different interests, united, one, family in Jesus. And it's the same for us, actually, when it comes to sharing the gospel with others and even praying for people. And so I want to ask you to consider, like, who do you struggle to believe the gospel is for? Because in the same way, we 
socialize with people who are like us, we can all tend to have faith for and gravitate towards certain people too when it comes to sharing the gospel. So I want to ask, who do you rule out? Like, who do you find hard? Ask God to help you have his perspective. Ask him to help you see that there is no one outside of God's power to rescue and save. Like Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, none of them beyond his grasp. I don't know who it is for you, but I tell you, they're not beyond his grasp. They're not beyond his ability and his power to save. They're not beyond his grace. Do you rule out Lydia's? Or slave girls? Or maybe men like the jailer? Maybe you're sat here today and you're not a Christian, but you identify with one of those characters. Maybe you're a bit of a Lydia. As far as anyone can see, you've got it together. You've got it sewn up. You're comfortable financially. You're well-educated. And just like she was searching, you're searching. I want to tell you that Jesus came for people like Lydia. and He came for people like you. Maybe you identify more with the slave girl. Life's been tough. By most people's estimations, there's not a lot going for you. You feel like you're held captive in one way or another. I want you to know today that Jesus came to bring freedom to people like you. Like that girl was set free in a moment. You can know freedom today if that's you. I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus can give you new life, hope in him, real lasting hope. If you turn to him and trust him, or maybe you're more of a jailer. You're loyal, you're hardworking, you don't stand out particularly, but you're just pressing on. And maybe a bit like the jailer, you carry the weight of responsibility keenly. Sometimes it's almost crushing when Jesus came to give you life and life in all its fullness. He gave himself completely for you at the cross. If you've never become a Christian, you've never put your trust in Jesus to forgive you from your sins, I want to tell you today, you can. There is no type of person that becomes a Christian. Like we see that clearly from Acts 16. There is no, like, oh, you have to be like a white middle class person to become, They're, those are the people who become Christians. That's not true. Or you have to be, you know, kind of weak minded to become a Christian. Like it's, it's anti intellectual. That's not true. It's clearly, clearly not the case for Lydia or for many others, for many in this room, in fact. But there are no entry requirements except humbly asking him to forgive you and save you. If you want to become a Christian today, if you want to receive new life and hope, then I want to pray now. I want to encourage you to echo this where you are, to own this for yourself and say, yes. Like, I, I, I want, just like Philippa, uh, just like Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl, I, I, I want that for myself. I want to encourage you to join me in this prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you willingly gave your life for me. You gave your life in my place at the cross so that I could be forgiven so that I could receive the most generous gift of all, eternal life. God, I thank you that you offer me a fresh start, 
New life with you at the center. I'm sorry that I've tried to live without you, live my life as though I don't need you. I turn to you now. Please forgive me. Please fill me with your spirit that's given us an assurance of salvation. Help me to live for you. I'm going your way from now on, Jesus. Following you. Please help me to live that out day to day. If you prayed that for the first time, or maybe you echoed that just now, I want to encourage you to speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or I'll pray for us who are Christians in this room that God would give him his heart for others, both inside the church and outside the church. See, that's what was going on at Philippi. That's what's going on in Paul's introduction as he wrote to them. See, Paul was a different guy altogether again. He wasn't like the jailer or Lydia or the slave girl. And yet, just like them, he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That led him to love those who weren't like him. To serve those who weren't like him. For him and Silas compelled them to stay in the prison. Like, man, the temptation to run off and be like, right, serve that jailer right. He was supposed to look after us carefully. Stop the crowd from getting to us. And he tortured us instead. Serve him right if we run off. He'll get what he deserves. How easy it would have been to harbor that kind of attitude. How easy we find it, perhaps, to harbor that kind of attitude towards others. I want to pray for us that that we would have God's heart, his love for others, just as Paul did, and just as these first Philippian Christians did.